Hello, I'm Jackie Mignot. And I'm Zach Robichaud. You're listening to A Podcast Made Flesh. Conversations about an embodied faith. We're coming to you from Treaty 7 territory, talking with all sorts of people about the incarnation. We're not reporters or experts, but we are questioners, and we are on a quest to have a conversation about the central Christian belief that God became flesh. I love the people I've gotten to know, and I have such appreciation for their faith and for their religious traditions. And each of these religious traditions is an ocean of meaning. But none of that takes away from my love of Christianity. Welcome, listeners. Uh, this episode, we're talking to Mr. David Goa. He's an Albertan, a fellow Albertan, although he disparages Calgary a fair bit um, <laughs> offline. Um, but he is just a wonderful uh, Christian thinker. I was thinking today, as we were uh, as we were going to record this tonight, this introduction, and I was thinking, you know, I think he's intentionally chosen to pursue Christ in such a way that it comes out so easily in mm-hmm. how he lives. And so, um, and that's really incarnation, right? God living mm-hmm. through a person. So um, yeah, I really enjoyed speaking with him. He is the uh, founding director of the Ronning Center for the Study of Religion and Public Life. And he's also uh, quite an accomplished curator Um, Well, I I went to one of his shows uh, 21 years ago at the uh, Royal Alberta Museum on Jesus through the centuries. Um, But he also has a wonderful website. I encourage you to visit davidgoa.ca and uh, visit some of the uh, some of the just the online exhibits that um, that he's curated. He also has a wonderful podcast you can listen to. Yeah, I agree with you, Zach. This conversation was so generous and that generosity kind of pours out of him as he um, welcomed the conversation and, and just dove right in. One of the things that struck me, he talked a lot about, um, maybe not a lot, but I remember distinctly talking about his, his faith heritage and the import, uh, the place of loving the scriptures. And you can see how, he lives out this story um, in word and in deed, and he's chosen to do that in such a way. One of the things we kind of talk about, so he, his, he, how do I say this? He lives out his faith in an Orthodox tradition, um, which I didn't know that he was connected to Brad Jerzak, who is another one of our guests um, in a very real way. They know each other quite well. And I, I loved that. I also love that they both offered a different way of, of, even though they come from the same place, they're offering a different way of into that conversation. And so that was really um, beneficial for me to see and witness how that works. So I'm excited for you guys to listen to this conversation as well. We'd like to talk about how the incarnation as it is uh, the kind of central piece of Christianity. Um, how does, how do Christians then relate to people of other faiths? 
um, because it can, I think, it can come across in, in, I think, a few different ways. And some ways are productive, some ways are loving, and other ways are unproductive and perhaps unloving. Mm. And um, maybe I'll even, I'll use the word charitable. So uh, can you can you talk a little bit about uh, your work in interfaith dialogues and, and that sort of thing, just to give us a sense of your experience? And uh, then we can talk about maybe how the incarnation has, has played a role in uh, developing those relationships. Well, the incarnation as uh, you know, we read in Paul is um, foolishness to the Greeks and a scandal to the Jews. Mm. And, um, these days, it's a bit of a scandal even to lots of uh, Protestants and even some other types of Christians who imagine themselves to be progressive, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, remember, I remember being so amused uh, years ago <clears throat> after um, Bill Phipps was elected to be the moderator of the United Church of Canada. He sat down and had an interview with some journalists in uh, Toronto. And, uh, and this caused a bit of an uproar because he made it quite clear that he did not believe that uh, Jesus Christ was God. So uh, at the time, the Sunday afternoon CBC program, Cross Country Checkup, had him on. And uh, it was uh, Rex Murphy yes. who was handling it at that time. And, and Rex, you know, has a reasonable education. And he's, um, he's also, uh, you know, kind of an aggressive guy. So he was a match for Bill Phipps. Mm-hmm. I know Bill Phipps a bit, and I always admired his work on social justice. And I admire the United Church's carrying carrying the can on that in Canada. My own view is that they've had to carry too much of it mm-hmm. because so many other churches have, have not been alert to their place in the public square. In any case, uh, Reverend Phipps was on that program and he went through the usual thing saying how <clears throat> he really didn't Uh, even like the idea of Jesus being God, because after all, you know, that made Jews uncomfortable and other people of other religions. What are they supposed to do with the fact that us Christians say Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth and the life. And so this went on and on and on. And then uh, Rex Murphy kept uh, throwing him a little more red meat and he kept eating. And, um, and it got around to the place where he said, um, you know, after all, everybody is God. And he went on about how everybody was God. And, and this went on for quite a while. And then I kept saying to the radio, I kept saying, Rex, Rex, ask, ask the obvious question. So you are saying to me, Reverend Phipps, that everybody is God? The only one who isn't God is Jesus of Nazareth? <laughs> and finally he did. Finally he did say that. So I was, uh, I was charmed by it. It's, it's not surprising 
really, because as, as you know, for the first, it really took the church seven centuries to kind of hammer out in, in any kind of an adequate way in terms of its own self-understanding, in any kind of an adequate way, mm. who, who this person was, you know, who do you say that I am, is an amazing question. It's, it's, it's the question asked of the divine when Moses is behind the mountain when he's seeking his vocation. You know, he says, uh, so you feel your people's pain. And then he starts to walk away to go and tell them that. But because he's a Jew, or at least sort of a Jew, even though he hadn't had any Jewish formation, he turns around and comes back. And like any good Jew, he says, who's your mom? You know, mm -hmm. Who's your mom? Who's your dad? <laughs> What's your name? I got to place you somewhere. Mm -hmm. And we have that extraordinary text, that extraordinary text that's so difficult to translate. Mm -hmm. Where the Holy One, blessed be He. In some sense, says it's none of your business. Mm -hmm. In another way, says, as the Hebrew has captured this in the very name for God, which is, of course, not a name at all. But it means has, in, is, will be. It's mm -hmm. this unbelievable dynamic sense of the eternal presence. So, <clears throat> so much of what we see in Jesus Christ is, of course, echoing. It's a kind of midrash on what we see in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, that is interesting that we've been able to, we feel as Christians like, oh yes, Jesus, Jesus is our pal. We, we've sort of been very uh, familiar with mm. this character where, whereas with God the Father, there is a bit more of an awe and mystery and reverence to the yeah. father. Whereas yeah. the son, even as you were talking about um, when, when you began with Phipps describing Jesus, almost re we've reduced him to just a man as opposed to the Holy one. Yeah. My Muslim friends uh, in Turkey and uh, Syria, when I've talked with them, I've always been struck, so struck mm -hmm. by their reverence mm -hmm. for Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. I've always been so struck by how their reverence for Jesus Christ makes so many Christians who think of who think of Jesus Christ as some kind of pal. Mm. Uh, it's it's extraordinary and from a muslim point of view it's a kind of blasphemy mm -hmm. um, because it's a failure to take your shoes off in the presence of the divine so 
I, I mean, I grew up with, with, uh, I sort of, I often say I grew up between the leather covers of the Bible because mm -hmm. my, my childhood at home, my, my father was kind of like a Hasidic rabbi, but we didn't have a synagogue. I mean, we went to church and all that sort of stuff, but my father was also quite critical. He was a pietist from Norway, so he was quite critical of clericalism and the church, mm -hmm. that sort of thing, loving it and being critical of it at the same time because that kind of criticism is a form of love. Mm. So mm. I wouldn't be surprised if... Uh, if the name of Jesus wasn't probably the first word I spoke mm. because of the depth of that kind of uh, narrative in my family's home. So I'm very grateful for that. Mm -hmm. The question of the incarnation and our stance with people of other faiths is, is, is a lovely way to think about what is the incarnation saying to us? Mm. What is it revealing to us? Mm -hmm. I'm, I, I'm inclined to say that, you know, the, the incarnation is not first and foremost a dogma, mm. but that dogma is there to help us hang on to what the incarnation illuminates, mm -hmm. to hang on to what it illuminates. So in that sense, the incarnation is a profoundly existential part of the Christian revelation. Just think of what this means in light of the, the history of religions. Mm -hmm. to say that God has become flesh mm -hmm. and dwells among us. God has become flesh. The beginning of the Gospel of John. Flesh, in scarcosis, uh, that... Um, Extraordinary word in Greek, hmm. of which, you know, incarnation comes to us through the Latin. So what is that saying? What is the point of it? Now, there's a, when we look at the great religions of the world, when we look at tribal religions, I love the word religion, you know, it's, it's from religio. Um, the root of it is ligament. You know, it's that the way the bones are held together. So religion to re-ligament is really about holding the bones of meaning together. The bones of the meaning of our life together. It's also interesting to me that, you know, if you would think about my pietist father, he would never call himself religious. And, I mean, he wouldn't normally refer to Christianity as a religion either. And if we look at other 
you know, some famous theologians, Karl Barth, for example, or some Greek theologians who would say that Christianity is in fact the antidote to religion because Christianity is about faith. It's not about these structures. Mm. Well, I, I appreciate what they're saying, but of course, this is also said by many, many educated Muslims and many, many Jews. Judaism isn't a religion, it's a way of life. Mm-hmm. It's a set of relationships, it's the covenant. <laughs> so we find this teaching everywhere. Hmm. It's not peculiar to Christianity. And, uh, and it isn't peculiar to a particular take on Christianity. It's not simply the preserve of fundamentalists or evangelicals or orthodox folks or anybody else. Hmm. But I love religion, nevertheless. Uh, because I see, I see religion as that kind of center of a human culture where all the great questions are um, being either engaged or run away from. <laughs> uh, and sometimes they look very similar to each other. Mm. So it's that part of human culture which is concerned with the central bundle of meaning of human life. Yeah. Grappling with this question of what does it mean to be human? Why do I exist? Why do I suffer? Mm-hmm. Am I loved? Can I live to love? Can I be healed? You know, those central, central questions. And those central questions uh, have always been sort of at the forefront of my concern. So, when I came back from studying in Chicago and I had spent a little time with, um, with uh, Mircea Iliade, the great uh, scholar of the history of religions, I, um, I accidentally uh, was hired by the Provincial Museum and uh, an institution which had absolutely no culture and didn't have any idea about what should be done. Mm. And I had never intended to do this kind of work. It had never been a plan. I never did have a career. I mean, that was not in my frame, really. I just wanted to know what the truth was. Mm. So (laughs) I found myself in a position where I could pretty much decide what I was going to spend my time doing. And since I was most comfortable with uh, exploring questions of meaning, and also I think because my parents were both Norwegian immigrants, I, I had a feel, a feel for immigrant and refugee communities. Mm. I also knew a little bit about what that felt like. And what it was like to live in two or three cultures. I mean, I grew up with a bit of the Norwegian culture, with the British culture of Western Canada in the 50s, and also with a very thick part of the biblical culture. Mm. So those were all there for me. So I suddenly realized, my Lord, look at this. I wonder how long I can get away with this. 
Hmm. And furthermore, our museums had nothing in them. There were no public collections which reflected the living tradition, Hmm. the historical experience, the sense of place, the cultural memory of everybody who makes this place their home, except for a few Scots families. Hmm. And they did a poor job of that too. So I was the first one to ever do this. And so it was a clean slate. Right. So the first thing I did, I had been, you know, the great uh, Romanian scholar, Iliade, in a lecture, he said, it was so stunning to me. He said, the cosmic Christ was known in Romanian peasant villages 5,000 years before Jesus of Nazareth was born. Mm. And that's, it's an arresting thought. Mm -hmm. It's not that foreign because we read it in Paul as well. Mm -hmm. But we don't think of it quite that way. So in any case, uh, as a kind of homage to him, and I'd been reading, uh, reading the patristics and the monastic fathers on, on the Eastern Christian understanding of the spiritual life. I decided to go and follow the liturgical cycle for Holy Week in a small Romanian community that I had discovered existed a couple hours from Edmonton. Mm-hmm. I don't know Romanian, uh, but I got a copy of the liturgies in English and read them and what have you. And I, I filled in the background a bit and I went out there and spent, you know, Holy week is very intense in an Orthodox setting and uh, there are services every day. Mm -hmm. So this was going into a part of the Christian world that was so different than Lutheran pietism. Right. And I realized very quickly that first of all, it was astonishing that all of the prayer was the Bible. Mm. And I knew that my, my father would have been stunned by this because mm. he thought that Lutherans were the ones that loved the Bible. Mm. And that they do, they do. And certainly my father did. And he prayed it too. But here were liturgical services in which everything was prayed. It was all prayed together. It was chanted. And it was all the scripture. Mm-hmm. The whole of the scripture was being used here. And it was praise. And it was confession. It was thanksgiving. It was grief. It was sorrow. Mm-hmm. And in that cycle of services in Holy Week, what you see is, a, you know, in the Orthodox tradition, it's a, it's a, taboo to uh, participate in passion plays. Mm. Uh, you don't play this. And the reason it's taboo, like the Oberammergau play or something, the reason it's taboo is that Holy Week is uh, the presence mm. of all of those events liturgically and as prayer. Mm. And it was there seeing older 
Romanian women, some men, whether it was before the cross on Great and Holy Friday or before the tomb with where you have an icon of the dead God lying in it, which is taken and processed around the church before it's brought in, the church becomes a tomb. Hmm. And you see the tears. You see the grief. That it's pretty hard not to realize that this narrative isn't about something that happened. It's about what's unfolding in your life. Mm -hmm. This is about the living God. And that the incarnation isn't about a historical person. It is that. It is that. But that's not its point, its ultimate point. It is also about you and me. Mm-hmm. It is, this is, the gospel is a midrash, a retelling of Genesis 3. Mm. And God made man, male and female, created he them in his image and likeness. And God said, it is good. Mm-hmm. In the Jordan River, God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Mm-hmm. And what happens in that Genesis account Well, self-forgetfulness happens. Hmm. They forget that they are in the image and likeness of God. That's why the temptation works. The temptation is you can become like God, knowing good and evil. In that one single phrase, Satan, the cunning one, the liar, the rumor monger, tells two lies. They already were like God. And the second one is, God does not know good and evil. Hmm. In God, there is no evil. There is no darkness, no shadow of turning. So the loss of, the self-loss that is described in that extraordinary narrative in Genesis is, of course, the whole meaning of the incarnation the prophets are sent great teachers arise and finally it's as if in a moment of exasperation the holy one blessed be he says no i'm going to come and show you who you are i'm going to show you who you are Hmm. And at the same time, I will show you who God is. So Hmm. this became really vivid to me. So to your question, I went out there to this Romanian community (laughs) in part to do this little study. uh, The meaning of these liturgical practices, what are they really telling us within this Romanian Orthodox world? 
I went to do that as a kind of homage to Mircea Iliade, the great scholar of the history of religions. And, um, and that of course opens up for me uh, a whole nother dimension of the living faith of the dead, mm. the mm -hmm. living faith of the dead and how profoundly existentially compelling it is. So I think that's a bit of the, the kind of origin of it and, and a curious kind of link to, to it as well. Mm. My, I was interested really in, I suppose, in very interested in the question of what is happening to the human spirit in the 20th century, in my century, now the 21st. I mean, to me, that was a huge question. Uh, the question really of tradition and modernity. And Alberta is a perfect living laboratory mm. in which to reflect on that. And my way of reflecting on it was to spend time with devout men and women in various religious traditions and explore with them through conversation, through going to their church, their temple, into their times of grief and times of joy, and just asking them to take me by the hand and lead me into their world of, of understanding. Mm. And so it it's, was a singular privilege. I never really went searching for it. I didn't have any question particularly. I wanted to glimpse what they loved. Even with that um, posture you describe going into these places speaks of though, um, like you're assuming that they are made in the image of God. And I, that's an obvious statement that I just made, but the, that, that, it's not that they are um, other than you. In essence, they're they're. Yeah, I I don't know if this is the. I'm trying to like formulate my thought here, but I I hear such a generosity of of spirit going into another religious tradition who, in some ways, orders like the worldview is different or maybe the, the details of the story are different, but they're asking the same questions. And so that's, you're assuming that the commonality of the questions. Um, and that seems really generous. I mean, we, and well, it's generous on their part. I mean, mm -hmm. they've all been unbelievably yeah. generous towards me. Yeah. Uh, the opportunity to, I mean, they became friends. Yeah. I buried more of them and are alive now mm. at this point in my life and um they became uh serious friends over yeah. a long period of time and i have nothing but gratitude and thanksgiving for them mm. your point i think is 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 obvious all human beings are the image and likeness of god mm. this is our teaching mm -hmm. this is at the center of the, the biblical revelation mm -hmm. and it's a unique it is a unique revelation in that for, for so much of the human family the being of the human is understood to be an accident mm. it's understood to be an illusion mm. 
It's understood to be a trial through which you must journey if you want to get to where the real world is. Mm. We see it vividly in Plato with his allegory of the cave, where he says that the vast majority of human beings are sitting facing a cave wall and there's a fire behind them and, and somebody walks between them and the fire and shadows are cast on the wall. And Plato says, yeah, that's what our life is like. We walk in a world of shadows. And of course, the, the great work of Plato was the language of the early church, the Greek language of the early church. And <clears throat> it was the language of the culture, so it needed to become the language of the Christian church as well. And um, so the early church fathers and mothers all use, many of whom studied in Athens, Basel and Gregory, and mm. many of them studied in Athens and had very good classical educations. So they had the language of, of Plato. But what they did with Plato is they turned him upside down, mm. kind of like what Marx did with Hegel. So what they did with Plato is they said, yes, yes. This is how people see things. Yes, no question. A world of shadows. And then, but then Plato, you see the world that is real is someplace else. It's the world of the good, the world of the, the absolute other, someplace else. But the early church fathers said, ah, no. Mm. It's not someplace else. It is at the center of your heart. It is who you are. The shadows are your projection. And salvation, the word in Greek, sotirios, means rescue, healing, is how to heal that way of seeing yourself so that you again become present and no longer present to the world and no longer projecting on the world your own passions your own misunderstandings. And that, of course, is what we see modeled in Jesus, both taught and modeled in Jesus. He is present to everyone in a kind of complete way. Yeah. Is that the good news? Yeah. It's that stunning news that, and think of it in terms of the ancient world, and much of the world today where gods are in charge of certain aspects of human life. Mm. You know, idolatry is all about, about the sacred. As Iliada said, the sacred isn't good, it's powerful. Mm. Many things are powerful. Family can be powerful, tribe can be powerful, city can be powerful, fecundity can be powerful, sex can be powerful. Mm -hmm. So there are deities associated with all these aspects of life. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's a task to, and a danger to think that these deities, these embodiments of the sacred, these they're images of things that are sacred. Family is sacred. Tribe is sacred. City is sacred. Mm -hmm. Your intimate relationships are sacred. That's all true. But what the Jews 
what Abraham and Sarah, what they had an inkling of, is that as sacred as those things are, they're not it. Hmm. There's the God above the gods. There's the one lover of the world. And that that relationship is of another order. Hmm. And that relationship opens the world. Hmm. It means that all things are possible. It means that you need to be in bondage to nothing. Hmm. It is the guarantor of surprise in human experience. <laughs> which is another way of talking about grace. Mm. Yeah. Can you share a little bit of some of the response um, that you've seen of people in other faiths um, to the person of Jesus? How have they received it? Because I have this picture of God revealing himself through Christ and people seeing Christ and perhaps not acknowledging that Jesus is God, but at least acknowledging that God is speaking through this man. Um, so there, I mean, there is that tension that we have then as worshipers of the Christ and, and having relationships with those who would appreciate, but not worship. Um, but, and you mentioned the, the regard that Muslims have for Jesus and, mm-hmm. and for the prophet Muhammad. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they, they have a different way of, of showing affection for, I guess. I've never met anyone uh, in any of the other religious traditions. Well, I better be careful here. I think, well, primarily so anyways. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Who did not have um, a sense of a pretty singular sense of regard for Jesus of Nazareth. Mm. For Muslims, Jesus of Nazareth is the the prophet of love. And um, he has, Jesus Christ has a singular place in uh, Islamic eschatology Mm -hmm. and in Islamic piety particularly in the piety side for Shia Muslims. Hmm. Uh, Shia Muslims were coming up to Ramadan uh, in, the, in the month of Muharram for Shia Muslims from Iran and Iraq and other places. Uh, there's a rich tradition of poetry about uh, suffering, the suffering of Ali, the suffering of uh, Hussein, the relatives of the prophets, and the suffering of Jesus Christ. And so you could go to a home here in Edmonton during uh, Muharram and there would be people gathered and they would be reciting and, and chanting to musical instruments these poems, some of which they may have written uh, and some of which are great ones that, that are handed down through the tradition. And they, just like my Romanian peasants around the tomb of Jesus Christ on Great and Holy Friday, 
would weep. Mm. Real tears. Mm -hmm. Real grief. Because there's a kind of... Those narratives and the narrative of, of, of the Gospels is incarnate in them. Mm. It's taken on flesh in them. Mm. It's given them a voice, a word. It is God's word, which is opening the floodgates mm. of both grief and joy. Mm. So part of the centrality of the incarnation is what it is saying to the human being about who the human being is. Mm -hmm. In a sense, Jesus shows us how. So he even shows us how to suffer. Yeah. Yeah. He shows us the way. Right? He, I am the he way. He is the way. Yeah. yeah. Don't be afraid of this way. Don't be afraid of your grief. Mm. Don't be afraid of your sins. Mm. <laughs> They're not to be feared. Mm -hmm. What's to be feared mm. is not awakening to them. Yeah. And the spiritual disciplines are to bring the time of the sin closer to the time of the repentance and the turning around to shorten that distance. Mm. That's what the spiritual disciplines are all about. Mm -hmm. Because that's the only thing we can do as human beings. For all have sinned and come mm -hmm. short of the glory of God. That's, that's the Christian Magna Carta. Yeah. That's telling us mm. we're free. Yeah. We don't have to have that as our fixation. Right. Our fixation can be or our, 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 what we ought to be attending to is the fact that we've been given the gift of life, that we have been called to the newness of life, and we have been called forth from the pit. Mm. Because the grave, the pit into which Jesus descended and dwelt for three days, is also, is also the grave, the pit in our lives, mm. all of those places of darkness in our life all of those places of despair, all of those places of alienation. Mm. And, and the story tells us, the revelation reveals to us that, that that is also the place of divine presence. Yeah. I mean, even if you don't believe it, it's amazing. What an amazing thing to say mm -hmm. about the human condition. Mm -hmm. What an amazing thing to say about the human condition. And to say, as it does so brilliantly, that strength is made perfect in weakness. Mm -hmm. That the crucifixion, the cross, the most virulent torture device, is in fact the tree of life. Mm -hmm in the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. In Orthodox iconography, you see the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the two thieves, and often in the icon underneath it, 
there's a little opening up of the of the hill and there's a skull mm. and crossbones this is the skull and bones of adam because the blood of christ redeems the human nature mm. it's not about just saving your soul as if your soul was peculiar it's about the redemption of the human nature that the human nature no longer needs to be seen from the perspective, any perspective other than that it is the image and likeness of God in whom I am well pleased. That's such good news. I like that makes me want to declare this is good news. And I, it, so if, if we keep this conversation in the, in the context of like how we understand Jesus and other faiths and, and so, so I'm just going to talk from our, my background, which I think is a little bit like Zoc's background, the, this very high exclusionary understanding of who Jesus is and, and this ascent, like you have to believe this and this and this and this, and then you're on the inside. And so people who don't believe this, this, and this, and this, um, God is not present to them. Like this, these are the things we, we heard, um, and, and still do here in, in parts of our circles. Right. Um, I like even just reading some of the doctrine of discovery stuff, like this is coming out now about how, like the, the rationale behind some of the colonizing, and and the and the destruction of a culture in a real way because um and and the discussions about well do these indigenous people do they have souls well they don't so we can treat them like this like this is the conversation that's happening in, in christian circles and then so i think that's there's this tension of how do we understand the work and person and incarnation of jesus in this world where we've all now we're all now together <laughs> We have to be able to acknowledge that the humanity and the image of Godness in each other, or like, or we might as well just give up, like it's, or else it's just war. Like, if we don't do that, and I don't know what I'm actually trying to ask here, but I'm just trying to give words to like, how do we speak to um, an understanding of Jesus that's exclusionary to a detriment, like to a harmful point, and then how how do we not though go so vague and so um because i think what i was hearing you saying some of the some of the the tendency in progressive circles is to go really vague with who jesus is and the particularity and the is is just kind of blown out it white like washed away like you don't see that and so how do we hold the jesus the incarnation it's so it's so curious i, I mean i i appreciate what you've said and you're describing how some Christians seem to respond to things, but when they do it that way, they're, they're not Christians, they're pagans. Because mm. that's the pagan mindset. That's the mindset that says, my tribe's better than your tribe. Yeah. My but, empire yeah. king is better than your empire king. So that's a kind of paganism. And, mm. you know, I appreciate paganism in some of its forms. So I don't mean that in just a, a nasty way. I mean, <clears throat> that, and we see none of that in Jesus in the Gospels. I mean, that's what's so stunning about it. 
Mm-hmm. What, what are the Gospels made of? First of all, if you were to pull out of the Gospels all the healing narratives, you would have almost nothing left. Yeah. Secondly, when you look at those narratives, those narratives are all boundary-crossing narratives. Mm-hmm. The Samaritan woman, yeah. the woman accused, the Roman centurion, the, Roman centurion mm-hmm. the good Samaritan narrative. So how in the world can you read that? I mean, for some reason, they've forgotten to listen what, does, what the text says. With my students in the last 20 years or so, none of whom had ever even seen a Bible usually, much less read it. Mm. What I used to recommend to them <clears throat> is that they get the waterproof edition of the Gospels and go and have a bath with their girlfriend and read it out loud with a glass of wine <laughs> as if it was a detective story. Mm. Now, the reason for this, I don't mean to be cute here. Mm-hmm. The reason for this is that I was still thinking that they were maybe like their parents and hadn't read the Bible for years, but had all these assumptions about it. Mm. So part of the challenge, and you may know this better than I in your ministry, Part of the challenge is to how, how to help people not presume about the text. Yeah. Just oh. listen to this bizarre text. That is the- there's, no, there's no text in the ancient world mm-hmm. about women, the way in which this text speaks about women. I mean, it's singular even within a very patriarchal society, it's still very singular. Mm-hmm. So um, mm. all of those narratives, Jesus Christ had no litmus test. Mm. He, he did ask a few questions once in a while, like, who do you say that I am? But, and he asked that both to his disciples as well as to his executioner. Mm. which tells us something and but he never had he never had any litmus test around doctrine not really around the moral life or about behavior mm-hmm. because that wasn't that wasn't what the incarnation was about yeah the incarnation was a, is that revelation that unveiling of the meaning of how you can actually be present to what is mm-hmm. not fantasize about something that doesn't exist or fantasize about the way you wished it was so jesus christ is present to everybody in a way that makes it possible for them to be present to themselves well, instead it, of presuming about themselves yeah that that's that's the Christos moment, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. I, it makes me think of, because you're saying does, Jesus doesn't have any moral, like there's no litmus test. And I was thinking about the one question, though, he does ask is like to to the to the Pharisees. And, and he's like, is it lawful to save life or to destroy it? Like that is his litmus right. test. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. it. Yeah. The Sabbath life, stuff. Life or death. What, what do you want to choose? Sure. The old prophet's question mm-hmm. your prophet's question yeah mm. er, earlier you 
you use the word um, uncomfortable. We're, we're not, mm. and I think it was even just in your opening story about um, uh, FIPS. How, and we, this, this word, it, it seems to be the theme of this season, um, discomfort or uncomfortable and uh, where actually the, the only place where something can happen and where growth can happen, where relationships can happen, is where things are uncomfortable. Um, and so I'm saying that to frame my question, is there an uncomfortable and yet productive way of sharing who we believe Jesus to be um, with others? That's interesting that you asked that. Is it like a question about evangelism? Is that kind of what you're saying? Or? Well, evangelism or even just, I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of, you know, street corner preaching or, you know. I, I, I love them. <laughs> I find them marvelous entertainment. They're entertaining. I just, I just don't. And I guess they are uncomfortable. I mean, it is a very uncomfortable. Oh. Uh, yeah. You got me there. <laughs> you gotta, gotta have room on the streets for crazy people, you know. <laughs> sick society that doesn't have room for them. Yeah. But my 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 initial reaction to your question, and this is a confession, I suppose, in a way, <clears throat> because um, so my initial thought as you said that was, I never wanted to share Jesus with anybody that I talked with. Hmm. That is with the Jews or the Muslims or mm-hmm. the Hindus or the Buddhists. I mean, that was never the question in my mind. Yeah. Right. Now, I have to tell you, <clears throat> in all of those circumstances, I have done that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but here, here's, my, here's what strikes me about it. And I mean, I've never really thought about this uh, mm-hmm. to speak of. So. Mm-hmm. I spent, I spent at least 10 years uh, periodically in the Jewish community here in Edmonton and Calgary mm-hmm. before anybody. So that would have been the first decade of my work. So in the 70s into the early 80s. And I did it with a, a, a Jewish woman who, uh, who came into my office and asked if I would help her with something. And I got to know her a little bit. And so that was that was a an opportunity. It was just an opportunity for me to take that walk that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Take me by the hand and lead me into why you love what you do. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> uh, it was at least 10 years before anybody in the Jewish community, and I had deep, compelling conversations with people, ever asked me anything about Christianity. Mm. 10 years. Now, did I think this was a little odd? Well, yeah, a little bit, but I was learning so much from them about Judaism, about the religion of Jesus. Mm. You know, <laughs> why would I want to turn that off? Yeah. So, and I always knew that these were Jesus brothers and sisters of an intimate sort, more intimate than I. So, <clears throat> but 10 years or so after, I got a phone call from the person putting together a adult education series 
and asking me if I would come and speak to them about the Christian understanding of the Mashiach, of the Messiah. I was shocked. We had a new scholar that had just come to town. He'd been here for about a year. His name was Francis Landy, an eccentric Englishman, biblical scholar, fine, fine poet, horrible teacher, um, uh, fine scholar. And he, he went to that shul a little bit, but I wanted to see that he could get integrated into that community more. So I said, well, why, what about, what about Francis? He goes to your shul. Um, how would it be if we do a duet? Mm. I'll talk about my sense of what Christianity means by the Messiah. And then maybe you could ask Francis to talk about the Jewish understanding of the Messiah. And then we can talk together. So we did that. Mm. And it was a fantastic evening, actually. I got a big bang out of it. My memory still pleases me about it. Mm. But, but, but Zach, to your, to your point, I, you know, for better or worse, I've never felt compelled mm. to tell people in some kind of abstract way mm-hmm. about Jesus Christ, except Christians. Mm. When I see Christians say things to me, which are clearly beyond the bounds of the being, teaching, and modeling of Jesus Christ. Mm. I then do feel a little compelled. Mm-hmm. But to my Buddhist, Hindu, Jewish, Muslim friends, first of all, I mean, I've had this privilege experience of of wanting to hear from them how they understand and behind that i suppose one would say since since i claim mm-hmm. that god is everywhere present and fillest all things a treasury of blessing mm. Since I, the Apostle Paul convinced me when I was quite young that the desire for God was written on everybody's heart. I've always just assumed that that's there. Mm -hmm. And that's not to take anything away from the particularity of the Mm -hmm. gospel Mm -hmm. or of the revelation of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Not at all. Mm But that's the Holy Spirit's task. That is, I think the Holy Spirit, I, I mean, I don't know what, I'll just say this so you can tell me what you think. I think the Holy Spirit is the gatekeeper on that. <laughs> because if I start speaking about that mm. without the Holy Spirit having opened that gate, I think, maybe I'm over, overreaching here, but I think it's a form of blasphemy. Mm. And let me give you an analogy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love my wife. Mm-hmm. You love somebody in your life. Mm-hmm. You see them as beautiful and a, a gift. 
So do you go to a bar and start telling everybody about it? Like, how do you speak? Mm. Now, if somebody inquires and you know them and you have some depth of relationship, you may, you may wish to speak about that because it's holy. Mm-hmm. It's holy. So it's not that the holy can't be spoken about, but the name of Jesus Christ is holy. Mm. But you don't speak about it the way you speak about Mickey Mouse really? or the way you speak about things that aren't intimate, mm. things that aren't closer to you than your own breath. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I guess my, my sense and certainly my experience has been that, well, let me say one thing before that. In, in terms of my sort of field research and what have you, and these, these things are not, you know, my life, I hope, tends to be of a piece. So they're not really separate. My understanding of the spiritual life and the work I've done are mm-hmm. pretty entwined with each other. Mm-hmm. So I think that my interest my modest interest in how somebody a man or a woman that i've met in a particular religious communities my interest in in getting to know them into being able to have lengthy conversations with them both about the forms of their faith and about the depth of it i know that one of the most important things about me that I bring to that conversation is the forms of my faith and the depths of my faith. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I learned very early on the first five years of my time in other religious communities that the men and women who had the who had the most committed spiritual disciplines were precisely the men and women who had the least fear and the least desire to turn you into something that they could recognize. Mm. Can, I, can I add the word, the least insecurity as well? Yeah. Yeah. That's right, of course. That's of course. Uh, they I were. see those seeking what we would see more on the Protestant or evangelical side of evangelism, there seems to be this insecurity that God can't do his work and that we must do it for him. And yeah, insecurity in their own belief. I think think you're right. They're trying to prove like the, the apologetic side is, isn't it's, a it odd? Nause- it's a little nauseating. Because- Isn't it odd wanting to prove God? I mean, <laughs> what is behind that? What a bizarre preoccupation. Mm. But I think you're right. I think there's a spiritual dis-ease in it. Yeah. So at the same time, mm-hmm. I, don't have, I don't have any, you know, I love the people I've gotten to know, and I have such appreciation for their 
faith and for their religious traditions. And each of these religious traditions is an ocean of meaning. Yeah. But none of that takes away from my love of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And I keep working at the Christian faith because both spiritually, God knows I have an awful lot of work to do, but intellectually as well, because it's such a delight. Mm-hmm. There have been times when I would say the Holy Spirit's opened the gate. Mm-hmm. This has never led to anyone having their, you know, converting or anything like that Mm. i mean i've got enough problems with brad jerzak (laughs) entering the orthodox church and what that's gonna cost me (laughs) the the throne of the judgment throne (laughs) so but there are words we can speak yeah there are words we can speak and and those are meant to be given to us mm. by the Holy Spirit in those moments. Mm. And I try not to confuse them with my own thoughts mm. and my own words. So to my mind, the I have I have sought in in my little modest work to be present to people and to attend to have some regard and to seek to understand and to appreciate the enormous differences. Mm-hmm. I, I think we share these great questions that I mentioned. Yeah. If you could find the right language, the right vernacular in which to ask them, those questions are, are there for everybody. Mm-hmm. But I am not only am I keenly aware of the fact that there are profound differences, but there are profound differences in my daily life too. Mm-hmm. And in in what I actually think at any given moment. So those differences to me are really fruitful because I wasn't interested in comparing religions. Right. I'm interested in people's spiritual life. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I got I got ten thousand books comparing the religions, and some of them are superb mm-hmm. and illuminating. But that wasn't the point. The point was, well. The point was really spiritual friendship. Yeah. Yeah. The point was caring for the soul of others mm-hmm. and the gift was that many of these people cared for my soul. Mm-hmm. And a number of these people also helped in my salvation, my healing. Yeah. So I'm not a what would normally be called a universalist. Mm. I'm not even interested in that position, to tell you the truth. But at the same time, 
I have been in the presence of the kingdom of God with all of these people. Mm-hmm. Because there has been communion. And if there's been communion, who am I to say that somehow or other something more was needed? Yeah. The something more that's needed is for me to lay down my life for them. Hmm. Ultimately, I think that's the, the hope is that we, by experiencing any kind of discomfort because of unfamiliarity or the unknown or anything like that um we can learn to love better that that should be the goal um you don't love what looks like you Mm. (laughs) i mean that's not love Mm. that's projection Mm. and uh I, I love the text, for example, uh, where Jesus Christ says, I am the way. Mm-hmm. I am the truth. Mm-hmm. I am the life. Mm-hmm. And think of it, because that text echoes Genesis 3, and it echoes it echoes Moses behind the mountain. I am. I am the I am. Mm. So way, truth, and life. I think part of, the, part of the tragedy is that periodically the church, many people in the church have assumed that the way was theirs, that, that their particular doctrinal formulations were truths, and that... Uh, their way of life was what God ordered. Mm -hmm. But the reason I love that text is that it, it says to me, look, look at how Jesus Christ is. What's his stance Mm. at the well? What's his stance on the road? What's his stance in the city? What's his stance on the cross? What's his stance in the home of Mary and Martha in front of the tomb of Lazarus? Well, that stance, I don't know what else to say about it, but it is the stance of holy presence. It's the stance of non-presumption. There is no projection in it. Well, now we've identified the diseases of the human mind. Mm-hmm. Projection, fear, and desire mm-hmm. are the two things in the human mind that lead to what even Freud could describe, which is a life of projection mm-hmm. instead of a life of presence. Mm. the opposite of presence is not absence it's projection it's presuming something instead of attending to what is even if it is another person's illusions especially then 
uh, when I asked uh, someone about the Orthodox view, the Eastern um, view of evangelism, and it was, well, if we can be Christ, if Christ can be in us, mm -hmm. then people will be drawn to, to him. If we can, yeah. if we can live and in flesh, yeah. um, his love, uh, what else do we have to do? Like there, there's nothing else. And the incarnation. Yeah. Be it. And Christ, you know, drawing all men to him. Yeah. Like that, that's all there is. Like that is to me, um, that's that's what'll cause all people to confess um that jesus christ is lord the the very simplest thing not easy but simplest way to share is to be present like what you're saying um many of the church fathers and spiritual mothers said said this said that you may be the only christ the stranger ever meets so you may be the only one who anoints the anointing one pouring the oil of gladness on the wounds of the world yeah. it's such good news I, like <laughs> I just can't get over the invitation to participate in goodness that heals the world, right? Like, yeah. Our recording today has been done online from our homes. Music graciously provided by Jennifer Oikawa. Check out Escape Plan to Canada by the Jen Oikawa Trio. One thing we'd like to develop more of is a conversation with our listeners. Uh, if you'd like to join the conversation, find us on Instagram at The Podcast Made Flesh, no spaces, or on Facebook. Like our page and follow us. Get all our updates.